today we are going to uh, continue our, our series on the Psalms. I think this is part five uh, that we are on, and you've got 150 of them in the Bible. So we are going to continue and back up one Psalm to Psalm 22. I heard some great comments about our message last week on Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And uh, so we're going to back up one, and that's kind of intentional, uh, because this particular psalm that we're going to cover is very, very strange, uh, but one that, again, we can relate to in a very, uh, I think, profound way, and it's Psalm 22. Uh, in the Bible's Old Testament, if you have a paper Bible, you just need to kind of put your finger in the middle like I just did, and I ended up at Jeremiah, so I'm just going to back up a little bit, and uh, there I am at, at the Psalms, okay? I like to use a paper Bible when I preach, but you can use an electronic Bible. I always talk to you about version, which is a great app that you can read the Bible electronically on, but I still like paper, and I'll give you a little tip. Uh, if you like a paper Bible, uh, I would strongly suggest that you, at one point in your life, buy yourself a good, what they call, cross-reference Bible. And a cross-reference Bible is really cool because you can, you can uh, dig around on certain themes or certain verses that you're reading. We're going to do that a little bit today in this Psalm 22. Uh, and, you know, you'll, in a cross-reference Bible, you'll have a verse that you read, and you can see, well, where is that referred to in other places in the Bible? Sometimes the, it's all done by computer, so sometimes it takes you on a bit of a rabbit trail, but most of the time, cross-reference Bibles are pretty good, and you can find out where certain verses are quoted or where the theme is repeated in other places in the Bible, so they're really, really helpful tools. And I've used my cross-reference Bible to prepare uh, for the message today, which we're calling, Why Have You Forsaken Me? <laughs> it's a strong, strong theme. Uh, this is written by David, who we've been talking about the last few weeks, and you seem to be a very knowledgeable lot here, and those of you online as well, and you seem to know a lot about David. You know, he was, uh, what was he again, uh, Omar? You guys, he said different things about David. Shout it out again. Oh, hey, all at the same time. A shepherd, what? Dancer, Dancer musician? Goliath. Kill Goliath? What else was it? He was short? He was short? <laughs> we don't know if he was short. We don't know David's height, yeah. Yeah, he was the anointed king after, after Saul. Uh, so this, this man, and he wanted to build the first temple, didn't actually end up building it, but his, his son Solomon ended up building the first temple. But he was this really incredible figure in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 23, we see this beautiful, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. And we see this whole relationship with God uh, that he, he, he uses his experience as a shepherd himself, as a metaphor for his relationship with God and our relationship with God. And it's, it's such a beautiful psalm. But you back up to Psalm 22, and you've got a completely different theme. And uh, it's actually set to music. We know that it is because that has remained uh, in the text. There's a tune called the Doe of the Morning, as we translate that, those, that term into English. 
and, and it was set to music. We don't know what the music sounded like at all. Uh, but some say that because of the nature of the psalm, it may have suggested a, a female deer, a doe, going out and being uh, slaughtered because it is a very dark-themed uh, psalm, at least, at least for the most part it is. And it starts with the, these really strong words, you know, why have you forsaken me? But it is set to music. It is written by David. And so we look at this psalm, and it's, it's a bit longer uh, than many of the psalms. So we're not going to read, you know, every single verse, but we'll dig into quite a bit of it today. And we have to ask the question, because we know Psalm 23, which is right after in sequence, what is it that caused David to feel forsaken by God. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the very next Psalm, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's strange. What is it that would have caused him to feel this way? And this is David we're talking about. So he's not, it's not like he's saying, you know, why do I, God, why am I feeling forsaken? He's not saying, I feel forsaken. He says, I am forsaken. <laughs> He's asking God, why have you forsaken me? So in his mind, not only is God not really listening to him, it's like God has turned his back on him. Hence this word that we translate into English, forsaken. It's a very, very strong term and a very um, uh, disturbing beginning to this psalm. What is it that caused him to feel this way? And the answer is, we're not sure. Was, it, uh, was he running for his life from Saul and he feels uh, this, this is coming out of his heart and, he, and in his mind, God has turned his back on him? Um, is it because of what happened in his own, uh, in his children and so on? There was all kinds of problems that happened. Uh, David has a history that's, that's pretty rough after the affair with Bathsheba and uh, the, the murder of uh, Uriah. And there's, a, there's consequences that David ends up living with, and he sees those in his children and so on. Was it that? Did he feel forsaken for that reason? We're not real sure. And uh, that's why it's strange that right afterward we have Psalm 23, but he definitely feels forsaken by God, verse 1. I wrote verse 24 there, but verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you read the psalm, and you're going to read some very, very dark descriptions of pain and suffering here, but then you get to verse 24, and he says, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, and he has not hidden his face from him. So he, he seems to have come uh, through a corner as he wrestles through these, these verses, these first 23 verses at least, but has listened to his cry for help. So he starts with the forsaken part, and then he realizes ultimately he's not forsaken. So what is really going on in this psalm? What is really going on in David's life? When you read it, this is probably some of the most graphic material that you will read in the psalms. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. 
Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. So I'm doing plenty of talking, but God, you are not responding, is verses 1 and 2. And then he says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. Note that word, yet. And that's a really good word in this psalm. While he has this, he's in this moment, for whatever reason, of tremendous discouragement and pain, he's still able to reflect on the nature of God. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. So I'm disappointed, but they weren't. I'm forsaken, but apparently they weren't. So he's starting to wrestle through his own discouragement, his own uh, uh, pain. And it gets even more graphic. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Wow, that's really scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, so they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, the, the, the writer David, since he delights in him. So he's saying, this is what the people are saying about me. Yet, there's another yet, verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. He's going way back and he's saying, God, I remind myself that you have had your hand upon my life since I was born. I mean, it almost reads like an execution, this psalm. It's like he's walking into the jaws of death and he's, he, he's having a, uh, you know, his life is flashing before his eyes, as it were. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you from my mother's womb you have been my god do not be far from me do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help very very bad situation many bulls surround me you're going to see references to violent animals here strong bulls of bashan encircle me roaring lions tearing their prey. I don't know if you've ever seen what that looks like. That's a violent, violent scene. Oh, they open their mouths wide against me. Big lion's mouth, that's the image. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me such despair and apparently physical pain and suffering that he is feeling my strength is dried up like a potsherd um, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth wow it's so intense you lay me in the dust of death dogs have surrounded me you've got bulls you've got dogs you've got lions 
Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. I'm surrounded. They have, in some translations at least, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, that's a suspicious translation. Uh, a more safe one would be like the lions. They are at my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. What a scene. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. That's a desperate, desperate scene. But you, it's like the yet, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. He's, he's finding hope somehow in his pain, isn't he? I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, he says. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. So he, he wrestles through all this and he comes to a place where he realizes, no, God has not forsaken me. God is faithful to me. He has been faithful to me since the beginning. He will be faithful to me even at the end. But it reads very much like, like uh, as close to death as you can possibly get. So you learn a couple of things from this expression of David in these first 24 verses. He's very transparent with God. And we've talked about this already. God would rather you be transparent and honest with him than you don't talk to him at all. He would rather you be angry. He'd rather you shout. He'd rather you scream. He'd rather you, 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 you vent. Uh, but when you don't communicate with God at all and you then you're not growing. And as I've said to you before, God can take your complaints. God can take your questions. God can take your frustration and your, you want to insult God. You know, you're not going to hurt his feelings. He's not going to go off on a room and cry somewhere when you insult God. He's heard it all before and he'll keep on hearing it. So he wants to hear you and he wants to hear you be honest with him, even if the things that you're saying may not be true. Maybe they're not. But he still wants to hear those expressions of the heart. And David is most certainly not shy in expressing himself. And he struggles through this pain that he's in. And he reflects upon God. And he, he kind of pushes himself to a place of realizing, no, God hasn't changed. God's going to come through. And he's even challenging people to praise God at the same time. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my great, of my praise in the great assembly. Uh, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever at all the ends of the earth 
will remember and turn to the Lord. Wow, all the ends of the earth, that's not just Jewish people, that's more than that. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. He sees, he sees everyone everywhere worshiping this God who he believes will deliver him. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive even will praise him, will worship him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So he wrestles through, and he gets to a place where he says, God is still there. God is going to come through. And it's a great, great lesson for us. Sometimes you have to struggle. I often use that word uh, with, with people when they're, you know, they tell me, oh, how do I fix this problem? How do I? And sometimes minor little things, you know, and I look at them and I say, struggle. I had a teacher in high school. And people were, he was a math, a math teacher. And people would have all these problems in math. And they'd say, oh, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. He'd look at them and he'd smile and he'd say, struggle. And sometimes you, you do have to struggle. Because when you struggle, you, you do exactly what David did. And you get to a place where you say, I've got to pick myself up. I've got to realize who God is. I, I may not have it all figured out. But I've got to realize who he is. I've got to realize that he's been faithful. Even in all this pain. And this is a remarkable expression of pain and suffering that the author is going through. We have no idea why. We have no idea when. Uh, some people theorize that he had an experience uh, with the Babylonians that was something like this. But it's just a theory. There's nothing to back it up. Nobody really knows what precipitated him writing this psalm and what the pain was. But then the very next psalm starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, that's enough for us. That's enough for us to go home and say, yeah, I, when, I, when I have those moments where it's like God has turned his back on me, I need to struggle. I need to be honest with God. I need to reflect upon who he is. And, and I'll come through somewhere on the other side. That's enough for, for today. And we could just leave it at that and do communion. And it would be enough. Uh, but there's something else to this psalm. And probably some of you have been thinking about it. Because there's something very, very odd and very, very strange about this particular psalm. And that is uh, that Jesus himself, not talking about David, we're not talking about another regular human being. But Jesus himself echoed the sentiment of Psalm 22, verse 1. When he was on the cross, when he was being executed, put to death, Jesus, of all people, uttered this exact phrase, we're told in the gospel accounts in the Aramaic language. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani is the pronunciation in the uh, Aramaic language. And he intentionally is, is quoting from this particular psalm. It's not a coincidence. When a, when a rabbi wanted to teach something from the Old Testament, in particular a psalm or a proverb or something, they would quote from the first verse. So here, 
if, if you yourselves ever feel forsaken by God, well, you're in pretty good company because Jesus himself uttered this verse. And it causes a lot of problems to people because they say, how could, if Jesus is God, how could he feel forsaken by God if he's God? He forsake himself? <laughs> and people have trouble with that and they don't understand that. Are we okay with the stream? Okay, well, you, you, whatever senior tech will help you with anything that you can't figure out. You're doing an excellent job. Thank you so much, Omar. So uh, Jesus himself utters these, these verses. You are in good company if you utter them. It causes people a lot of problems. Usually those problems are solved when people realize that Jesus is a very unique person because you have one person, two natures. You have the nature of God. You have the nature of man. And often in the Gospels, Jesus will address the Father or address God, and it's very human. And uh, other times you will see he's referring uh, to his deity. Other times it's clearly this is the human relationship that he has with God, okay? So uh, we need to just be cognizant of that when we run into a problem like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what an application. If Jesus himself felt it, I mean, and you feel it, Wow, you're in really, really good company. All kinds of action. I think we're switching to this camera, yes? Okay, good. Hi, everyone. The guys are helping so much with these cameras and all of this tech, okay? Uh, so we have this uttered by Jesus in the Gospels, but it gets even more strange. It isn't just that Jesus feels this way and that he's echoing the sentiment of Psalm 22, verse 1, but you start to read this psalm and you start to slow it down and you have some very strange stuff that's going on here if you know anything about the crucifixion. And the gospel writers pick up on this just a little bit. So uh, Psalm 22 verse 18, which we read already, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing is the verse. And we see that in uh, John's gospel, Matthew's gospel, the, the gospel writers pick up on this. So John chapter 19, verse 24, this is Jesus uh, uh, at his crucifixion. And you see the uh, that the way that he is treated by those who are going to actually pull the trigger, so to speak. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, and with the undergarment remaining. Was it remaining on him, or did they even take, it, take that off him, and was he crucified in, in uh, the nude and in shame? Scholars debate this. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And John picks up on this, and he says, This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided and cast lots for my clothing, Psalm 22, verse 18. They, they see it. John sees it. John realizes this. Matthew picks up on this as well. Same kind of thing in Matthew chapter 27. So they, they, they are hunting around in this psalm because Jesus quoted the very, very first verse of it. And they notice, wow, this is a fulfillment of 
of predictive prophecy. You say, come on, predictive prophecy. I, I cannot believe that this psalm has anything to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, I didn't either uh, until I started to hunt and hunt and hunt even more. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I had all kinds of questions uh, because we were, we were being taught by the preacher that we had to share our faith and that, you know, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And I was like, uh, what, are you, 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 what are you saying? That all other religions are wrong and people have to be told about Jesus? And that's exactly what we were being taught uh, in, in the church. And I thought, oh boy, I'm not so sure I'm ready to tell other people about Jesus. He works just great for me, but I'm not so sure that I have the right to go and try and tell somebody that their religion is you know, off or something and that you know, Jesus is the only way. I'm not so sure about that. And so I went on a long, long hunt to try and figure out, do I have a leg to stand on from an intellectual standpoint to try and defend Christianity and tell other people about it with some honesty and with some, uh, what they say in, uh, in Yiddish, some chutzpah. Right. So, you know, because that's uh, maybe I'm in a cult or something like this is a little strange. And so when I started to learn about this particular Psalm and the wonder of predictive prophecy, I was absolutely stunned. So the writers of the Gospels see the gambling for the clothing by the violent uh, guards who are going to execute Jesus as a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. Okay, that's quite interesting. But it's what the writers do not see and what they do not mention that is even more interesting, more stunning. You know the verse that I read, they, they pierced my hands and my feet, and I go over that quickly because that's a very suspicious translation. Uh, I saw or read a, a, a blog from a, a rabbi who was is, who is, uh, fighting back against this, uh, this particular psalm because Christians, and probably some of you in this room and some of you watching online, say, well, look at the psalm. The psalm is a description of Jesus' crucifixion. It's so obvious, right? And this rabbi was pushing back and he's saying, no, the way this verse is translated, they pierce my hands and my feet. This is a Christian effort to proselytize and to change the scriptures and so on. It's nonsense. It shouldn't be that. I don't even care about that verse. That verse isn't even that interesting to me. It's all of the rest of it that the gospel writers don't see that is absolutely stunning. It's uncanny. So verses 6 to 18 of the psalm, you have this, it's a rather gory description, but it's almost in sequence what a person would feel if they were being executed, in particular via hanging on a tree in a crucifixion. This thing from verses 6 to 8 is suspiciously like what Isaiah says. You know, all who see me mock me and they're shaking my heads. He trusts in, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. You say, ah, that's a coincidence. But then you read and you say, wow, many bulls surround me. These, I'm being surrounded by, this, by all of these animals who are trying to rip me apart. Uh, the, the lions are at my hands and my feet. Uh, Jesus was surrounded by this company of the guard 
He was, he was viciously beaten. He was flogged, probably in a more brutal fashion than the typical criminal. And some of these symptoms that he has here, uh, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. The dehydration that happens when a person is up on a cross, their, their joints and bones are being pulled. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. I'll get to that in a moment. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It's dehydration. It's rather bizarre when you look at the conditions of Jesus and his crucifixion and you look at this psalm. It's really interesting that Jesus quotes it. The gospel writers don't see all of the stuff that I just mentioned. All they see is the gambling for the garments. But what they don't see is stunning. And I'm not the only one who has recognized this. Uh, I'll cite from an article and show you some pictures. The Journal of the American Medical Association this is way back in 1986. It's now a famous article uh, that was written uh, to try and figure out from a medical perspective what killed uh, Jesus and how did Jesus die and I'll put some illustrations on the screen. They're quite graphic But the authors of this article go through go through it in absolute detail And I would highly highly suggest that you read the article it is on our website uh, If you go into our sermons page and you go back to Good Friday I have it on our website as a PDF and you can read it it to me it is one of the most moving articles from a scientific perspective, I've ever read because of the detail that they go through in what Jesus would have felt like under the conditions of crucifixion. You see how he's flogged over there, and they talk about how he had to pick up this, you know, 100 kilogram probably uh, uh, cross over his shoulders after he's beaten and he starts losing blood, and all of this is in rigorous detail. And they show you the where the nails would have gone into his hands and all of this, and they show you where the nails would have gone into his feet. I put a couple of pictures on your screen there as well on the right-hand side in color. Uh, those are the only two confirmed crucifixion victims' bones that we have ever found. Uh, the one on the left, in the upper left-hand part there, was found in the, in the 60s. I think it was 1968 uh, in the Jerusalem area. And we have, a, we have a, the nail is still in the man's ankle. It is the most famous and well-known crucifixion victim. His name was uh, Yohanan ben Haglagol, I think is his name. We have his name uh, recorded for us. And you've got that nail going right through the ankle. Wow. And then underneath uh, are pictures of uh, another victim that they found in Italy in the, I think it was in the uh, early 2000s, the 2007, 2008. And you can see the, the hole where the nail went through the bottom of the man's leg. It's just, it's, I mean, crucifixions were a brutal, brutal way to die. And this article describes it so well, and they teach you how, how Jesus would have breathed or tried to breathe on the cross. It's extremely difficult. When people would die, that was really the problem, is trying to survive long enough to keep breathing. This is why the soldiers came and they, and they hit the legs of the victim, because as soon as they did that, they know the victim would die very, very quickly. We have records in the ancient world of some crucifixion victims taking days to pass away, days hanging on that cross. It was a brutal, brutal way to die. We get the term excruciating pain, we say. That comes from the word 
to be crucified, crucifixion, and what it would have looked like when the spear went in the side. We'll get into that in a moment. But these authors, they conclude at the end of the day uh, that Jesus died of a number of things. Hypovolemic shock, which is all this blood loss, exhaustion, asphyxia, which seems to be typical for people who die on crosses, and probably acute heart failure of some sort or even rupture of the heart. Hmm. This is where it really got quite stunning to me because in John's gospel and John's gospel alone, we have a particular detail there that uh, leaps off the pages of the narrative and uh, he tells us it was a special Sabbath. The Jews didn't want the bodies to be kept on the crosses and so they asked Pilate to have the legs broken to take the bodies down because that would hasten the death. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. One on one side, one on the other side. Likely they immediately die, at least that's the implication. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, wow, he died quickly, only about six hours, I think. I did the calculations once. That's pretty quick for a Roman crucifixion. If he, was, if he lost a lot of blood and he was beaten very severely and flogged very severely and had to carry the part of that cross, it's conceivable that he would have died quite quickly, so that's reasonable. They found that he was already dead. These are professional Roman executioners. They never, never miss in a crucifixion, never. So they didn't break his legs, we're told. They're quite convinced that he died. Instead, one of the soldiers is only in John's gospel, and he finds it strange enough to write it. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. I'll put the picture back up one slide if you can on your, on your tech there. He pierces, uh, pierces Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Odd. The man who saw it, presumably John, who's the writer here, the man who saw it has given testimony, and he knows that his testimony is true. So he says, I'm telling you, that's what I saw. I'm telling you, it's true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he tells the truth so that you may believe. Believe what? These things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's not from Psalm 22. And another scripture, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's not from Psalm 22 either. Like I said, what they don't see and what they don't tell us is, is what makes it so powerful. Those are quotes from Exodus and uh, Zechariah that John realizes. And he's saying this crucifixion is the fulfillment of scripture. It is prefigured for us it is foreshadowed for us it is imaged for us in the scripture but what he doesn't see in psalm 22 is what is so striking and here in psalm 22 verse 14 i am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart has turned to wax it has melted away within me whoa hold on a second here so you've got modern medical science Telling us in this article, this is a secular journal. This is not some Christian journal. The Journal of the American Medical Association is a secular journal. Telling us, look, one thing we know, for sure Jesus was dead. He wasn't partially dead. He didn't swoon. 
He was absolutely dead because that blood and that water tell us that he was dead. Something happened to his heart. Either it was heart failure or it was maybe even heart rupture. And John and, and the psalmist David has this in a psalm that Jesus quotes the first verse of. And you've got 20th century medical science corroborating this minor little smidgen detail that only John records. My friends, the string of coincidences there is just way, way, way too high. Way too high. And I've read the rebuttals of this, and they're not persuasive at all. People say, oh, well, the psalm was written in the first century after Jesus died. I've looked at the Dead Sea Scroll of this psalm that was written 100 years before Jesus was born. It's in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the late 40s in a cave in Qumran in the Middle East. It's there. I've stood in front of the scrap of parchment or papyrus that that psalm is written on, and I can tell you that it was written before Jesus was even born. David wrote this thing a thousand years before Jesus was even born. How is it that you have this kind of pinpoint accuracy with this little minute smidgen detail confirmed for you by 20th century medical science? It's an uncanny coincidence. People say, well, it was written after Jesus lived. It's easily refuted this. Oh, well, this thing with the piercing of the hands and the feet. So what? I don't even care about that. I look at all the other verses and I'm stunned. People say, oh, well, it's just coincidence. It's only coincidence. Leave it alone. Well, it wasn't coincidence to Jesus. Jesus uttered the first verse of this psalm when he was dying, gasping for air on that cross. What do we have here, friends? We have a, a very unusual piece of scripture that, in my view, a very strong case can be made that we are looking at a staggering piece of predictive prophecy here. You want to know why I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Because of this. When I read this passage, I cannot put it underneath the, the, the carpet somewhere and, and, and put it away and say, well, this is irrelevant to me. It means nothing to my life. No, it's relevant in so many ways. Friends, how many times have you been in that place where you've said, God, you've forsaken me? How many times have you been in that place where you say, this book is no longer relevant for my life? It's not the inspired word of God. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, he is faithful. Oh, yes, it is the word of God, you see. And we have this preserved for us beautifully. Like I said, you can stand in front of that piece of scripture. If you go to the museum, you will see it there. I've, I have seen it face to face. And, and chills went through my spine because you're... you're when we teach these things, when we talk about the faithfulness of God, it's not, we're not just saying it, folks. You have a very, very good case to hold on in those moments when you, when you are feeling forsaken by God. One other person in the scripture quotes from this, um, this passage. And uh, gentlemen, you can come to the, to the stage and start to play. We're going to finish up and uh, have communion together as we close today. One other person quotes it, and it's the author of Hebrews. We're not sure who the author of Hebrews is. Some people say it's Paul. Some people say it's Barnabas. We've done a whole series on the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 2, the author is making a case for Jesus being human. He's not just God, 
but he's also a man. He's human. We relate to him because he's, our, he's part of our family, the human family. And he's trying to build this case. And in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2, in bringing many sons to glory, obviously sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Struggle. This is a reference to the cross. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus, we relate to Jesus because he's human. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, part of the same family. So Jesus calls you his, his brother, his sister, part of the same family. He says, and here's the quote from Psalm 22, verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. So the author is making the case. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. He recognizes it. He sees it. And he understands that Jesus is of the same family as those who are being saved. And that's really what communion is all about. We remind ourselves at communion of the basics. It's like a, it's like a spiritual reset for the soul. And uh, this is something that was done regularly in the early church for sure. And something that continues today. We do it in a really, really simple way uh, in this church. So uh, while we have that slide on the screen... Uh, if you're joining us at home, you can go into your fridge, get a little bit of juice, maybe a piece of bread, and you can participate with us as well. And I'd like the gentlemen, if they have their emblems too, yeah, I want you guys to be served as well at the same time as us, and you don't have to play and, <laughs> and uh, participate at the same time here. But you can just peel back the top layer. We have it all in a kind of a one uh, set here, and it's a very, very simple thing that we do. But it is a reminder and a reset button for the soul. And we often read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we do this. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is a picture, a symbol of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, an atonement for our sins through that brutal crucifixion that we've looked at today. Let us partake together. I'll just peel back this little second layer here. And you just have some simple juice here. Don't worry, it isn't, there's no alcohol in there. And uh, it, it, he continues, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. Relationship, the new relationship with God in my blood. Not the blood of animals anymore, but in God's very blood shed on the cross for us. And he is of the same family as us. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Because maybe you'll forget. In remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you're the preachers, you proclaim the Lord's death. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus will come again. Let us partake of the juice together. Amen. Can I pray for you as the, as the men begin to play? Father, we are just so thankful and, uh, Lord, so, um, uh, so humbled when we look at the, at the cross and we see what you have done for us. It just causes us to pause and to reflect. Lord, as we imagine the suffering of Jesus and what he did for us as, as our substitute, Lord, as we think of those times when we have felt forsaken by you, uh, we, we just remind ourselves, God, of your faithfulness. We say yet to our soul. We say but to our soul. God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. From my mother's womb, he has been faithful. So I pray for each one in this room and those who are watching online, those who are going to watch later, listen later. God, that you would impact us with your faithfulness with your hope for you are indeed the king of kings let's sing that song uh, as we close today uh, that the, the guys will lead us in thank you sing it with us Praise the 
God of glory, majesty. 